Food Talks, live interviews with inspiring people. Bonus episode, Innova Nuburan on Brian Fernie Howe and Cassandra Dream Song. I don't know what the, is wrong with flutists playing it because you have to be a little crazy to even start that piece. And he added, like, yeah, and then the syndrome that Ina has, I don't know what that is. <laughs> he actually doesn't take himself too serious. And That's crazy to hear. Yeah, that was a side that I enjoyed a lot. You know Fernie Howell very good, not only from his pieces and music, but also the person, the, the man behind it all. <laughs> Can you tell something about, uh, about him, about your relation with him, your, your collaboration, your art together? He is, of course, again, this legend. So um, what I said in the beginning of not having reference or tradition, that is not true, of course, when you play Fernie Howe, there is like this whole history um, in front of you. It really scared me. Um, because there are not that many specialized uh, Fernie Howe players, but those that are, you know, they make an impression, like also the RTD Quartet, for example, um, from personalities far away from who I am. And that made me very um, uncertain and, and doubting if it was the correct path. Um, I spent a lot of time really practicing in detail because I knew he was coming to UCSD. Um, he was coming for a residency and then teaching us on his music. And then, yeah, of course, I was the weird one doing all the, the, the flute pieces. Um, so I met him at UCSD for the, for the first time. And he was very, yeah, it was this big aura that came in. So everyone was, oh, Fernie, I was coming, Fernie, I was coming. Also for the composers, it was really exciting. Oh, yes, I can imagine. Um, I also had my DMA recital while Fernie was there. It was my second year then, only four of the six pieces. The last two pieces was for my, for my um, last recital. But still, I mean, four pieces. Um, and then two new pieces were written for that recital. So those composers were very, very nervous as well. But everything was very calm. He was, I've heard other stories, but working with him um, was actually enlightening um, in the way that it is impossible to think like he thinks. For example, Superscriptio is written with all these irregular um, bars, um, irrational bars. So you have a 912 and a 110 and a 317 um, while keeping a continuous eight note at 56. Mm -hmm. I still don't know how to do that, of course. Uh, so I recalculated everything and I was completely ready to play super scriptio for him. And then he was standing next to me, beating the eight notes constantly. I was like, damn. At the end, we kind of ended up together, uh, kind of. Uh, but it's, it's incredible to see how his mind is dealing with all these algorithms, with the polyrhythms, with the irrational bars. Um, it's incredible. It's, it's something very difficult to grasp. Um, and then I also noticed that, okay, there is that, and there are a lot of books and analysis on his music, but how do you start practicing his music? So I really focused on that pragmatic side, what Steve Schick also did with Bone Alphabet. 
that you um, kind of make it more accessible for other people after you to start picking up his music because it's great music. Um, and he appreciated that. Um, and then after my my after I graduated, we saw each other again at Darmstadt and did this kind of lecture symposium thingy together. And that was actually super, super nice. He really took his time because he, he didn't have to do that, but he really took his time, also answered all the questions from students. And then at the end, he gave me uh, paintings that he made, digital paintings. Maybe that was already the first sign that I would oh, go into digital I see. art. I don't know. Everything makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> A gift from the universe. No. Um, and that was, that was, yeah, that was really out of gratitude, especially for the analysis that I did on Cassandra's Dream Song. Yes. Um, and I always, I kept having a, a really friendly contact with him. I always felt, um, yeah, not enough or not important enough. Um, because he did talks and panels with, like, for example, Arditi and with Lucas Feltz. And I was like... <laughs> What am I doing in these panels? But he never gave me that impression whatsoever. Um, and then I heard from some friends at other conferences, I was not part of that. I was not present. And it was about Unity Capsule. It was a question from the audience. And then um, his answer apparently was like, yeah, for Unity Capsule, I don't know what the, is wrong with flutists playing it because you have to be a little crazy to even start that piece. He said it himself, <laughs> apparently. yeah. So hearsay, it was a friend who told me who was, um, who was present there. And then he, he knew that my friend was there, that we knew each other. And then he added, yeah, and then the syndrome that Ina has, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Um, so yeah, <laughs> I like these things that he doesn't take himself too serious. He actually doesn't take himself too serious. And That's crazy to hear. Yeah, that was a side that I enjoyed a lot. Maybe that was just in the interactions that I had, but it was something that left an everlasting impression actually, also on his music. In, in Sisyphus Radix, the alto flute piece, at some point it's written Malsano and you have to play it like a little bit sneaky but he was really making these sounds and these movements yeah imagine it's like those three witches and they are dancing around the cauldron and they're like it's that that you need to have you know and oh. that was a kind of of musical um work together that i didn't expect i i would have with him um, right you would expect maybe something, yeah, something very cerebral and very serious based on math or yes, algorithms or like rhythm 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 and that was then not the case and it confirmed what i found or what i yeah discovered is a big word in his music that is very musical it's a very it's very a very musical repertoire Although he's like being pinpointed and, and, and marked as this very cerebral composer, I find the treasure behind the notation is, is actually quite incredible. It's, yeah, it's very musical. And I still think that I can only um, encourage flute players to really dig into his repertoire. It's worth it.
Can we talk about your analysis of uh, Cassandra Dream's song? Yes. And and also your um, your academic approach as an artist. Yeah. So um, part of the of the DMA in San Diego, um, also PhD in composition. We all ha we all have to do it. Is researching um, three chosen topics. You research that with an advisor for each topic. Um, and then um, you get, at a certain point, you get questions and then you have 10 days to write three uh, publishable papers um, on that um, topic. And one of my topics was Cassandra's Dream Song. Um, and when I was digging into the history and the interpretation of Cassandra, I noticed that it was, um, yeah, it was the subject actually was still very... Um, sexist thinking in Western and classical music. Um, you had this pion the Pioneers version. Yes, can you give us some history, uh, the year when it was written and, and, yeah. and um, the years of interpretation Station. so we can imagine what kind of uh, cultural background was sure, there? Sure, sure, sure. So it's written in 1970. Um, he wrote it himself, so on a flute that he was trying things himself. It was a, a C flute, so not with a B foot, but with a C foot, and closed keys. And that was it. And so he was trying things, and he wrote that piece. And then it took four years before someone played it. That was in, in 74, obviously. Uh, it was Pierre Rivartot, who was the first one to play it. And then a few years later, Harry Starreveld was the, the second performer um, of it. Two, two men, and well known at that time for contemporary music. Um, demographically, in the 70s, in the 80s, there weren't that much female flute players yet as now. So logically, also not a lot of contemporary flute players at that time. So it was not seen as a strictly male piece, of course, but it happened that it was being performed by um, male performers. They had quite a mathematical approach to it. So as you know, or as some people know, Cassandra's dream song exists of two pages, consists of two pages. Um, and then the first page, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, you need to play in order. And then the second page, A, B, C, D, E, you can choose the order. Um, and then you go from one to C to two to B or whatever. You make your own order in that. And they made a mathematical calculation and analysis of that second page, like how many sequences or sub phrases are there per line, and then we make one crescendo build up in sequences. All fine. They ended with um, a big shebang on the highest note. All fine. Um, what was more problematic was the division between the first page and the second page. The first page is quite steady. It's um, there is not that much different pitch material. It's it's really focused on certain what I call sound worlds. You have an A sound world and a B flat sound world. On the second page, you have the same thing, but it's more all over the place. You also have results of that. Um, Rhythmically, it's less steady, and then pitch-wise, there are way bigger intervals than on the first page. So visually, you already see a division. Now you also feel me coming. What was the <laughs> natural conclusion of people? Oh, the first page is very steady and uh, powerful and analytic, so it's a male page. The second <laughs> page, all over the place, very emotional, female page. Of course. Of course. Of course. Oh. Um, 
So there was a reaction on that, luckily, from Dr. Alan Waterman. She also um, studied at San Diego in the 90s, when Fernie Howe was still a teacher in San Diego. So afterwards, right. he went to Stanford. But at that time, he was a teacher um, in San Diego. And she had a different approach. Um, she, she based her interpretation on a novel, Cassandra, from um, uh, Alexandra Wolf. And... Um, the Book of Wolf tells the story of Cassandra from a female point of view. But as you all know, Greek storytelling, Greek myths, all written by men. Um, yes. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Is um, there a pattern there? <laughs> um, written by men, very stereotypical writing. Um, the, the heroes of the stories are, are mostly male. There are not that many or, yeah, really not a lot of female heroes. Or positive characters. Or positive characters. And it was also this stereotyping of an exaggeration of female um, personalities and char characteristics, uh, but very, very stereotypical. She wanted to change that, and she wrote a book from the point of view of Cassandra. Um, but the thing is, a myth is a myth, and you cannot change the outcome. So Cassandra was still being raped, and she was still chosen um, by Apollo to receive the gift of uh, fortune-telling. And it was the first uh, hashtag me too <laughs> in, uh, in the world because um, she would receive the gift of fortune telling by Apollo. If she would agree to sleep with him, she agreed. But then she got cold feet. She said, nope, not doing that. He, of course, furious. <laughs> um, and he cursed her, um, her gift. She would always see the, the future and would tell the truth, but no one would believe her. And from, yeah, she became then very um, desperate. Um, female hysteria came from that, screaming like, no, really listen to me, but no one was listening to her. And that led to this very stereotypical um, thinking um, of Cassandra, that she was a hysterical um, woman, very emotional, not stable at all. And you see that in the interpretations. And even in the Wolf book, it is still apparent. You cannot change the outcome of the myth. The myth is the myth. You cannot change it. It is what it is. It is written in stone. And even if you change the tone of voice, uh, does it make a big difference? For me, it didn't. When I was reading the book, I still felt that it was... Um, um, it, it was the, also the tone of voice in that book that was sometimes um, disturbing for me as a reader, that Cassandra would be like, ah... Helas, poor me, what is happening to me? And okay, it's from her perspective, but it was still not that empowering behavior that you would expect from a more feminist approach. Um, this being said, Alan Waterman based her interpretation on that novel and she went more into a narrative storytelling, so more musical. Um, and she divided the second page um, as a development of Cassandra's life where there was first there was anger, but then she had acceptance of her faith. And she made that order of the second page. Um, still, it was a fixed order. Mm -hmm. While Fernie Howe really asked to change the order on the spot, to decide the order on the spot. And there was still this division between the male and the female page. Um, so I thought maybe it needs an update um, in the 21st century. And I had a more... Um, 
not scientific approach, but I went to, to more um, soft sciences and humanities to really look what is the impact of Cassandra, like for example, in psychology and discovered that there is something like the Cassandra syndrome and the Cassandra dilemma. Um, especially the Cassandra dilemma is interesting because also now it is very apparent that this is, for example, in climatology and you have people, experts, with, co with COVID, for example, you have experts warning of what the outcome will be if we don't change our behavior. But that outcome is so, so frightening, frightening and we are scared and, and it takes time before adaptation. But then, of course, you know, it develops, it develops. And then when we are finally ready to change something, the outcome completely changed, of course, because it's only exponential. And those people, those whistleblowers, um, are then often being blamed of the outcome. Why didn't you tell us? But it's, it's this human, it's this human behavior. Yeah. And you can see that um, a, a lot now, applicable a lot, um, but it's also versatile, it's more mobile. So my interpretation is then more that what, you, what your input is constantly changing, it's also changing daily, so the output is as well. So it really depends on what you play on the first page, what will be the result or the answer or, um, or a natural development on the second page. Um, and that was my effort to take this stereotypical um, division between male and female out of that piece because I also still believe that it deserves so much more than 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 this um, opposition opposition of, of yeah it's very binary yeah. and actually there is way more complexity to the piece than just a binary division actually yeah wow yeah I think it's a very uh, empowering and um, interesting analysis also in the sense when you in your paper um, invite the, the reader well the musician the flutist of, of course um, to go further and yeah. to think further and to continue this thinking deconstruction reconstruction reinterpretation because um, what is really speaking to me is um, what I'm taking from this is um, the idea to, uh, even though Fernie Howe also became this classic, uh, quote-unquote mm -hmm. classic uh, composer in within the realm of, of contemporary music, we can still um, we can still make it fresh. We oh can yeah, yeah, still make for it sure. new because. Contemporary music is about today and about what is happening exactly. today. Yeah, it, it, is, it is very remarkable, I find, with that piece, how visionary it is. He didn't have this psychological analysis in mind at all when he was writing a piece, simply because that analysis wasn't being done in 1970 yet. There's something from the 80s and from the 90s where psychologists really were defining a Cassandra archetype and an Apollo um, archetype. So it was not something that was in his mind. That was also, also the division between male, female, this very binary thing was also not in his mind when he was writing it. The thing is, he can agree with all interpretations. So he agrees with the Pioneer's version, but also with Alan Waterman's and also with mine. And I think there you see this, yeah, this evolution in time, actually. It's how society is, is changing, how artists and, and, and flute players, young flute players now, I don't consider myself a young flute player anymore, but young flute players now 
are um, thinking differently about playing, about their music, about their story than what was happening 50 years ago. Exactly. But it's actually astonishing how topical this piece still is. It can be a piece written today, um, also conceptually. And yeah, I, kudos to Fernieau for that. I find that pretty special. I think it's really going to be one of those pieces that will survive um, history, music history. This bonus episode ends the first season of Flute Talks. Thank you for listening. I hope you learn one thing or two along the way. And most importantly, got inspired to take your own path in flute playing. Stay tuned for season two with even more interviews with inspiring people 